The sermon text for today is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 434. Listen as I read God's word. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of the God remains in the tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up from Egypt. To this day I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all of the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people to Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pastor, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I will be cut off like all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel in the earth. So that I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and that they no longer can be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning, and they have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with the floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Here ends the reading. Am I unmuted? Am I on? I don't know. Uh, we got we got uh, some housekeeping stuff to do first. Uh, if you are uh, going to go to children's sermon time, uh, please uh, meet Dina in the back, and she will take you down to children's sermon time, and she will be back in some time with the kiddos once I get done. Also, I have been told that I need to write down what 30 minutes from now is on the last page of my... 30 minutes is 11.23. Uh, because some people complained about me preaching for 45 minutes last time. I don't know why. I don't know why. Could be because we're not used to long sermons and I'm long-winded. I am uh, Dave Hammond. I get to serve as the uh, director of Next Gen Ministries here at Elmwood, and I love it. I, I have had such a blast. Um, I've only been here for three and a half months, though. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that I would like to know about a lot of you that I just haven't found out yet. 
Um, and there's a lot of stuff that I would love for you all to know about me. And uh, you just haven't found out yet. <clears throat> just you wait. Uh, one of the things that I would love for everybody to know about me and how I interact with God is that if you ever come here, when I first walk in, I'm sure John hears it every day. Uh, there's a guitar in my office that I just like slam on. And please don't ever let me play, Peter. Um, it's just really loud and annoying, and I'm off-key with my voice. My wife will tell you. I love to interact with God through music. It's great. Uh, another way that I love to interact with God is through the scriptures. Because I think that the scriptures themselves are this beautiful portrait of the story of God. That's one long story, 66 books, written by many authors over thousands of years. And this, this is time where the Old Testament, for you guys, the timeline starts over here. The Old Testament all arcs forward and points us to Jesus. And the New Testament does this amazing thing of helping us arc back and look back to Jesus and what God has done in proving his love for us in Christ. And it's just this amazing thing that when you, you read the scriptures and you, you open up your Bible every time, you're going to have this opportunity to see God doing something great in a different time period than today. It's this chance for us to say, okay, how did the people in the Old Testament point forward to Jesus? How can I orient my life pointing to Jesus like they did? Or how can I read in the New Testament of the great grace of God pointing back to Jesus? And and what can I do to point back to Jesus like those people did in the early church? I... uh, yeah, I really wish we had more time to go through the entirety of the Bible, but we don't. <laughs> 30 minutes. <laughs> Got a clock right up there. 30 minutes. We, today, I want us to focus on one question that keeps on getting brought up over and over again. A question that gets brought up throughout the entirety of Scripture. A question about who is the king? Who, who, who is the king. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are given the responsibility by God to rule and reign. Kingly, queenly ideas in the Garden of Eden. Who is the king? Throughout, uh, as we move forward, there's a simple sentence in the book of Judges that brings up this question. There's a simple sentence that says, uh, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Who is the king? We have two books in our Bible called First and second kings. Who is the king? I think every Christmas... T- oh, I didn't put these up there. Every Christmas hymn that's out there has the words king in it somewhere. Right? It, sometimes you have to dig to the seventh verse. But uh, the wise man verse from O Holy Night, the king of kings lay thus in lowly manger and all our trials born to be our friend. He knows our need, our weakness is no stranger. Behold your king. Before him lowly bedden. Joy to the world starts with joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her. O come, all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. O come ye, or come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the of angels. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to. Uh, I, I did a, uh, a survey of some of the next gen kiddos. Um, one of their favorite Christmas songs is uh, the little drummer boy that goes, come they told me parum pum 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 a newborn to see parum pum 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 our finest gifts we bring parum pum 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 to lay before the king parum pum 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 rum pum 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 rum pum 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 rum pum 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 
We're going to all acknowledge that those lyrics are awkward, except for the king stuff, right? Okay, uh, lastly, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We did this verse this morning with slightly different lyrics. It's the seventh verse on the Hymnody website. Uh, o Come, O King of Nations, bind all peoples in one heart and one mind. Bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our king of peace. It's all over the place. Who is our king? It's, it's one of those things. And we live in the 21st century. Not in the late bronze, early iron age. What does this king stuff have to do with us? We live in a nation whose organizing documents are specifically anti-monarchy. If the great American experiment of the United States has anything to say in the conversation about a king, it is we don't need one. Every four years, we'll overthrow the government and install a new person in office. We don't need a king. We don't need the king's son to take over or daughter as the queen. We don't need a king. In our cultural context, we don't look for a king. Kings can do some great things. They, in, in history, good kings have done phenomenal things. Good kings will provide for their people. Good kings will protect their people. Good kings will administer justice. And good kings will point his people in the right direction. Good kings. There are all kinds of examples of bad kings. But good kings will do phenomenal things. And we want those things. We want to be provided for. We really do want to be protected Talked about how we vote people into office. We vote people into office and encourage them to take our money and give them to somebody else to protect us. It's the police force. Take my money, please. They're taxes, right? We want to be protected. We want someone to administer justice. We don't always all agree on what justice is, but we want someone to administer. When things go wrong, we want someone to set them right. And we, we really do want to be pointed in the right direction. We, we need a king in our lives that certainly might not look like some guy wearing a crown of jewels that has a bunch of gold and the jewels are from all over the globe. We, we need a king, but we don't quite know how to look for one. It doesn't matter if you're here kicking the tires of Christianity for the first time or again for the third time, or if you have been a follower of Jesus longer than I've been alive. All of us, kids from 1 to 92, all of us search for some kind of king in our lives. All, all of us do this. We look to celebrities sometimes. Some of them natural singers, other them good at the YouTubes that are going to give us direction. We look to authors, politicians with their promises of how to fix our lives. We, we look to news anchors or the court systems. We look for kings and queens. We look for people. I, I know some people in my sphere of influence who will look to spiritual gurus and hold them up and put them on a pedestal, and they become a monarch for them. And they just let them, the, the, these gurus, I'll do whatever that person tells me to do. I've seen people do it with pastors or small group leaders. I've, I've seen people do it with Christian podcast hosts. We try to find someone to be king or queen. But all of these people that we look to, uh, they're, they're people. And because they're people, they, they will fall off that pedestal. 
And when they do, sometimes we get to the place where we can't trust a king or a queen anymore. We can't trust a monarch. And so therefore we define ourselves as the king or queen, the only one who's going to look out for number one, me. The only one that's going to give direction to my life, me. And we become our own monarch. I become the only one that can point me in the right direction. We might not call them king or queens in our modern day sensibilities, but we all look for them. And so, because we all have king and queen issues, it is important for us to say, we should know how God speaks about this one that he installed as king. It would be a good idea for us to look to the scriptures, look to the creator of all things and say, how do you think about kings? What do, what do, you, what do you do here, God? How does this work? Who is God's king? As we look at 2 Samuel 7, 1-17 to this morning, we are going to see what promises God made about his king to Israel and then how those promises point forward to Jesus. Would you all pray with me before we dive in? Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this chance, God. To interact with each other, to be your hands and feet as we journey on this life together. Father God, I I ask that you would prepare our hearts and minds to worship you as we listen to your word. Holy Spirit, convict us again today of our need for you. God, thank you for showing us your love by sending your son, the second person of the triune God, to die that we might live. We love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, everybody gets to open up a pew Bible or their phone or whatever else. I'm going to open up this Bible to page uh, 434 to get to the Second Samuel 7 so that we can all have it open and we can all reference it. While you do that, I get to tell a story because that's what I get to do while you go get your Bibles open. The story is about the first time I really interacted with these verses. I, I, uh, I interacted with these verses as a child. I was told them, I'm certain, because I went to a church that looked at the Bible. I just didn't really listen. But uh, the first time I really looked at them was when I was in college. I went to the University of Minnesota, a very secular school, learned about the Bible uh, amongst a bunch of very secular Jews as we were all taking Jewish study courses, uh, which in my religious studies field, that's what we did. It was great. They used the phrase Davidic dynastic oracle to talk about these verses. Uh, What I want everybody to do is just to be ready for their holiday parties to have useless trivia. So, Davidic dynastic oracle is what we're talking about this morning. It will make you instant friends this week as you go to your parties, and they're like, what did you talk about at church on Sunday? The Davidic dynastic oracle? I mean, you can try it out. I am a wealth of useless knowledge. I hope it can pass on to you. Is that enough time? Did everybody get their Bibles open? Yes? Good enough? Okay. Um, As we look at 2 Samuel 7, this is going to break down into two big Chunks, one admittedly smaller than the second. The first chunk, uh-oh, uh-oh. we're going to label as David's desire to build a house for God. For those of you that are looking for a bit of context, David is the king of Israel. He, uh, he's uh, one of the, the guys those, we, we hear about from the children's stories, from like David and Goliath where one guy kills another guy and chops off his head and holds it up for everybody to see. Right, those children's stories that we all tell our kids, <clears throat> along with the story of Noah, where everyone dies. Right, the, the great, great children's stories. Uh, th- that's, that's this king. That's this David. 
King David is the second big king after Israel settles down in their land, no longer being a nomadic people in that land that was promised to their ancestors. God's been worshipped in a tent called the tabernacle for generations now. And so as these people are now settling down in their land, this promised land, it makes sense that the king would say, hey, I want to like make a, make a house for God. Let's like settle down. We don't need a tent anymore. We're not going anywhere. We got this. We can, we can like land here. And I love David's heart in these verses. I love David's heart exposed in verses one to four. He has an idea. He's got this idea, like his living conditions versus God's living conditions. He's like, this is not right. I got the king in a palace and we've got the God who set the king in the palace living in this tent that's been carried around for enough generations now that's probably not the most glamorous thing in the world. We should change this. I want to honor God. I love that about David's heart. And then after he makes a plan, he's got it all figured out, he goes and checks with the man of God. Man of God, is this what we're supposed to do? I I like this about he's willing to surrender his desires to what God wants. A lot of David's actions here are certainly worth emulating. If we just copy and paste these actions into our lives, we get people who honor God above themselves, who help other people honor God above themselves by our actions, right? David's trying to build a a house for God so other people can honor God well. We get some people who check with spiritual mentors before they do anything. These are great actions to emulate. And the Bible isn't just about heroes, who are worthy of being emulated. The Bible is primarily about God, God's character, and what he has done. And so we're going to transition. That's like the first little portion, verses 1 to 4, David's idea. The rest of this whole section is going to be God's promise to build a house for David. One of the things I learned a long time ago uh, in my spiritual journey was that it's good to check out transition words in the Bible. As you're reading through the Bible, it's good to have a highlighter with you so that you can highlight words like however, and, or, but, like. As you do, you're going to notice more and more incredibly beautiful contrasts. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. This With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You intended it for harm, this is Joseph, but God intended it for good. You killed the author of life, this is from Acts, but God intended it for, oh, but God raised him from the dead. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But God, being rich in mercy. Right here in verse 4, we end up with another but. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. But that night, God showed up. I want to be clear because uh, when I start telling people to look for butts in the Bible, I'm not telling you to look for people's rear ends. I'm telling you to look for butts in the Bible. You'll find really nice butts as you go through. Because it's like... Okay. Uh, verse 4. But that night, God showed up. But that night... God changed things, and David had this incredible plan to build a house. But God had other plans. Verses 5 through 9, God helps David see the situation as it actually stands. God has never asked 
to live in anything other than his tent. He's actually cool with his tent. He's, it's fine. He doesn't need to be put in it. He's been doing a whole heck of a lot of things for his people from his tent. The tent's good. He, he's been sovereign over the whole world from this tent. He doesn't need a palace. Instead, God starts to make promises to David. Verse 9, he will make David's name great. Verse 10, he's going to give his people land without enemies. Verse 11, we end up seeing God saying, David, I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. You don't need to kill more Goliaths. I got you. And then comes the kicker. God says, David, you want to build me a house. I'm going to establish a house for you. And this is a beautiful play on words. Because David's wanting to build God a building which is good. But God says, it's, I, this is not just a house I want to build you. I want to build you a family, a kingdom, a throne, a dynasty that will go forward. God starts promising things to David about what it's going to look like when he's dead and gone. If we look at verse 12, when you're dead, one of your kids is going to sit on the throne. It's not going to be up for grabs. Last time we had a king transition, it was Saul, who's not your dad, to you. It's going to be your son. That kid's going to build that house that you've been planning. You got the blueprints, just give it to your son. He'll get it figured out. That throne that your son sits on, it's going to be established forever, verse 17 says. Verse 14, like a father, I will be to your, this child. I'll be there for him. I'm never going to pull my love for him, says verse 15. And this house that I'm building for you, David, is going to be for all time, forever and ever. These are some awesome promises. These are like huge words to anybody. But David, we have to remember that David's story starts not with Goliath, but with being the youngest son, this dude from Bethlehem, some backwater town in Judea. He is nobody that God should be talking like this to him. And maybe David would have dismissed all of these promises. But God had already shown himself and his character off to David time and time again. He'd shown himself to be a promise-making and promise-keeping God. Over and over again, Adam and Eve get the promise, a snake crusher is coming. Talked about that last sermon, right? Abraham gets this promise. The first patriarch of Israel gets a promise. You're old. I get it. Your wife is old. I get it. God says, you're going to have a son. Your family's going to be huge. God promises to Abraham's grandchild now. Guess what? Those promises I made to your grandfather, they're for you too. And out of you, they're going to come kings. God promises. God promises Israel now, Jacob's kids, have now grown into a nation. You're going to go into the land and you're going to want a king. I got some rules for your king. 400 years before you're in the land, God says, I got rules for you because it's going to happen. God makes promises over and over again as a promise-making, promise-keeping God. David knew who God was. David knew God's character. And so David couldn't. Ignore these promises that God was making to him. God promised big things. 
and awkwardly it creates a tension. Because God promises great things. Another true, but we are uh, not God. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God, but we are promise-receiving, promise-breaking creatures. David and his son Solomon are no different than all of humanity. The rules for a king that God told his people about, king was supposed to be chosen by God, not a foreigner. Uh, This is Deuteronomy 17. uh, Doesn't trust in wealth or political alliances to get him out of jams. So he, he doesn't have a bunch of horses or a massive army. Doesn't have a bunch of wives to make political alliances with the people around him. Doesn't have a bunch of gold to pay off people who are trying to attack his city. But instead, be someone who trusts in the word of God. God wanted a Bible nerd on the throne. Someone who copied the word of God and had a copy that was like in his handwriting that he would read every day and follow every day of his life. It's just a couple chapters after 2 Samuel 7 that David shows off the fact that he's not there. Solomon certainly shows off the fact that he's not there. A couple chapters later, we get the story of David and Bathsheba, where David ends up getting for himself a new wife by sleeping with a woman, killing her husband, and claiming her as his own. If we look at the end of Solomon's life, we end up with a guy with a massive amount of horses for his army, 700 wives, 300 concubine. I'm not a good enough husband for one wife. I don't know how you do 700 wives. Uh, The dude might not have been a foreigner. He was God's chosen. Uh, He might have even been a Bible nerd. Solomon's quoted as being the wisest man that ever lived. But both David and Solomon end up with some really massive issues. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. We are promise-receiving, promise-breaking creatures. In the 3,000 years since David was on the scene, uh, we haven't gotten much better. We are still busted, broken people. Especially when we're in positions of authority or influence. Our politicians fail us over and over again. If we go to the doctor, we would like them to be able to fix us and, and fix everything. They're not miracle workers. They're doing the best they can with the information that's been given to them. Pastors aren't immune from huge gaffes. And even if we give up on listening to everybody else and we've installed ourselves as our own king or queen, we still fail, up, fail to live up to our own expectations. We are promise-receiving, promise-breaking creatures. But God told David that his house, his kingdom, his throne would be established forever. So there's a tension between David and his, David's son, David's kids, who are all humans, and the king, well, the, the God who's setting up the king. How do we reconcile it with the brokenness of the two sides of the equation? Given the chance, I would be like David. It, given we have a promise making promise-keeping God and a a promise-receiving, promise-creaching creature in the story of God and David. I'm on this side of the stage. 
I make a really bad God. I'm really thankful I'm not God because I know I make a bad God. Given the chance to be king, I'm sure I would screw it up. And I think that many of us could probably say the same thing about ourselves. We would find ways to mess it up. And so while we need a king, because we all look for a king that can be good to us, we need a better king. (laughs) We We need a better future king. We need something that's more than like dirt creatures like us. We need a king who can sit on David's throne for all time, always. We need a king who will build an ultimate house for God. We need a king who can give God's people ultimate rest from their ultimate enemies. We need a better future king. As we move through the Advent season, we're preparing our hearts for the advent or appearing of a king. And we need an ultimate king. Uh, We need the king who was born in a lowly manger. We need a king who was lifted up. Yes, he was lifted up by his people. But the time he was lifted up by his people to, to be enthroned was the time he was wearing a crown of thorns and nailed to a cross. We need a better future king who died to take our death. We need a better future king who forgives our every sin and gives us rest from our fight against our ultimate enemy. So for all of us, there's a realization to make. We, we need a better future king. We, we need King Jesus. In the same way that uh, Israel looked to God and, lo- and looked and, and did the things during David's time, I think that we can point back to the kings in a similar way. We can point back to Jesus and in this Advent season, the, the people of Israel did some things for David. They, they, they surrendered to David. They, they looked to his rule and reign. I think in our time, we also, as we point forward to when King Jesus comes back and when we look back to when King Jesus came the first time, we need to surrender to his rule and reign and recognize that he's the one in charge and not us. I want us today, as we react to this idea that we need a better future king, we need King Jesus, I want us to think about uh, our desires, our plans, and our actions. I want us to think about, because David had desires. He wanted to build a temple to God. He he had plans. He's got some blueprints that he's going to pass off to his kid. And then he did act on those. He did everything, eventually, what God told him to do. But when God said, nah, you're, hold on. Not yet, David. I'm going to build you a house. David said, okay, God, I, I, I'm okay. I'll, I'll surrender to you. I don't, I don't need to go through with my desires. I'll surrender to your desires. I don't need to go through with my plans. I'll surrender to your plans. I don't need to go through with my actions. I want my actions to line up with you, God. And so this morning, I want us to consider what are our desires? Do our desires line up with God's desires? I want us to consider our plans. 
do our plans line up with God's plans? God has an incredible plan to reach out to the entire world with his love. Do our actions line up with God's actions? When other people look at our lives, do they say, there's something different there. I want that. Do we reflect the character of God and his kingdom by our actions? Because we need a better future king, King Jesus, is there anything in your life that needs to change? One of the things I love about Christianity is that over and over again, I can come to those list of questions about my thoughts, my plans, my actions. I can, I can come again and again and again and check my desires, and I can come and I can say emphatically, yes, I got issues. So do you. Welcome to the team. This is why we're in church, is that we know that we have issues. And again and again and again, Christmas comes around once a year to remind us, you got issues. You got a king coming. And again and again and again, we can come to God and say, I'm sorry. I have screwed up. I have not done this right. Please forgive me. And like a good, loving father, God again and again and again wraps his arm around us and says, David, I love you. I demonstrated my love for you while you are still a sinner. Of course, I love you. And again and again and again, God says to me, I died for you. You're forgiven. And so, yeah, make a list things you want to change. Consider your desires, your plans, your actions. Recognize that you got stuff to change and then come to God because again and again and again, he will forgive you. The moment he demonstrated his love for us is exactly the moment we celebrate every time we take communion. God demonstrated his love for us by dying, having his body broken. And so we take bread every week that's been broken to signify Jesus' body. Jesus' blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, and so we take juice every week to signify Jesus' blood that made a new covenant for us. And so today, as we consider the fact that we need a better future king, we need Jesus, I encourage you, come to the table and be nourished by Christ. I, uh, I want us to take 30 seconds of uh, just silent confession and reflection before we come to the table together.